0: Thanks for listening, and I hope you will be inspired. Today on Inspiring Women, we are speaking with Dr. Nicole Christian Brothwaite. Now, Dr. Brothwaite is a practicing child and adolescent psychiatrist. She did her undergrad work at Villanova. She got her medical degree at University of Pittsburgh. She is also um, the Senior Vice President and Medical Director at Array Behavioral Care. She's the CEO of Well Minds Consulting Company, where she focuses on advising schools and educators in terms of how to deal with um, supporting youth with mental illness. Dr. Brothway is committed to working with underserved children and families both locally and globally and she's also very accomplished and interested in the intersection between technology and medicine and I am excited to be speaking with you today Dr. Brothway thank you for being on Inspiring Women. Thank you so much for having me. Well, let's dive in. You know, I always want so much to talk about in the space of behavioral care and youth and adolescence and this pandemic and my gosh, but before we even get to that, why don't we just start with what do you do in your day-to-day? You both practice as a physician as well as lead a technology and services delivery company. Tell us
1: about your day-to-day. Sure. So like many women, I I think I have more than just one job, many more than just one job. Um, I am the, as you mentioned, the medical director for Array Behavioral Care. We're the largest telepsychiatry company in the country. Um, And I am really proud of the work that we do because our, our goal is to really extend behavioral health and mental health access to individuals who would otherwise not have that access, particularly as a, a child psychiatrist, um, and you know we, we're, that's been certainly magnified during the pandemic, but there are so many children throughout our country that just literally have no access to a child psychiatrist, in particular, a child psychiatrist who accepts their insurance. Um, there's many as 70% of counties in the U.S. don't have any child psychiatrists. So a lot of the work that we do are putting psychiatrists and therapists and nurse practitioners in medical centers and communities that do not have any access to behavioral health care. And then in addition to that, I have a small consulting company uh, where I work with organizations, schools, parent groups um, around educating them about trauma, recognizing, identifying, supporting children who have experienced trauma, Understanding that the definition of trauma is much more broad than I think we previously understood, and also supporting more underserved or marginalized kids who may be experiencing racial trauma, and how do we support um, individuals and communities around that
0: well that is um that is just a lot of things that you are working on very important areas in healthcare and before we go to some of those broader issues nicole if we could just like turn it you know to you you started with like so many women i'm i'm doing a lot of things and Boy, you, you surely are. Um, how did you get started? So, did you always want to be a doctor? How did that happen? And then, also, how did you start to move into those broader issues, education, as well as technology and larger services delivery?
1: Uh, g- great question. My, um, my mother and I, when I was shortly after I was born, until I was about two or three, were homeless. So the, a lot of my early memories um, were around my mother's activism. After being homeless in the 80s, she started a nonprofit organization called Dignity Housing in Philadelphia, um, where we're from. And so I, I grew up around social activism. And so I always knew that a part of who I would become would be helping people. And it was just a matter of how I would do that, um, and so I, a lot of the, the work, I volunteered with my mother's organization. I worked um, as a child and even as a young adult with many of the kids in her organization, um, Dignity Housing, created housing programs and job programs and for, for women and families um, who were, were homeless and who were really struggling getting back on their feet. And so that, that's kind of where my mission started in, in supporting people. Um, and then I realized that a lot of the kids that I worked with, weren't necessarily just struggling with the the social or environmental stressors, but they were internally dealing with a lot of stress. And so that's, that kind of piqued my interest in high school and college and around mental health. Um, And so once I went to medical school, I fell in love with child psychiatry and I I had wonderful mentors. Um, And then Through my work with children, again, I recognized that there were so many kids who I just could not access. I I previously worked um, in Rhode Island on an inpatient unit, and I worked with a lot of kids who were victims of sexual trafficking. And once they were no longer acutely at risk or acutely suicidal, they went home. And we had such a difficult time finding a local therapist or psychiatrist who could support these kids. So we did all of this work with them for days or weeks, and then they'd go home to nothing. And that's when I realized there has to be more. So I started doing more work around educating larger groups, but then also realizing that pre-COVID telepsychiatry was a great option to access these kids. And and that's when I found um, Array, which was previously Regroup, um, where two two organizations merged and became Array Behavioral Care. And I, I really started learning more about technology, understanding technology and recognizing how it could benefit our country and mental health as a field.
0: So first of all, that is an incredible story to start from, you know, a, an experience growing up, understanding what homelessness looks like, you know, having your mother found an organization, Dignity Housing, participating in that, and just building upon that to the work that you're doing today. That's amazing. And so that perspective, I imagine, has shaped sort of every decision that you've made along the way. But the way you just told the story um, sounded Very easy, very natural in terms of one thing building to the next. So I'm just curious, you know, how did you have that level of confidence in yourself to get from, you know, I'll call it humble beginnings to being at a senior leadership level in a very significant organization?
1: That, that's a great question. I it was by no means easy. <laughs> I think <laughs> that was more of just a, a way to to offer a quick summary. I um I think I still like many people deal with imposter syndrome. I am always like, do I deserve to be here? Should I be here? I I know I work really hard, and sometimes I find that I work even harder because I, I always feel um, like I have to prove myself. That there there's a, a need to to prove um, that that I belong here. But I I think one of the, or one of the, the many reasons that has, that's helped me to be successful is having support and mentorship. Um, my My mother obviously was a huge factor in who I am today. And she would work 12 or 14 hour days and then come home and check my homework or, you know, we struggled financially, but she would scour the newspaper to find activities and opportunities to, bro- to, to broaden my horizons that were free. So, you know, or, or we would drive because we couldn't fly, we didn't have the money to fly. And so I, I certainly, having the, seeing what it's like to, to not have, and then also having a window window into what it is to, to have financial security, um, I think that, that that gives me an opportunity to, to empathize and certainly understand and also recognize how incredibly blessed I am to be in this position and to never take that for granted. And also using my position to support and mentor others in the same way that, that I, was, I was mentored and, and guided. And people saw something in me and they believed in me and invested in me. And if I did not have mentors and I did not have that support, I certainly would never have been able to succeed in, in anything.
0: At what point was your, you know, where did you find the next mentors? So, so many women who are accomplished like you, the mothers are often that sort of like first very important person that showed them what leadership looked like and that you can accomplish, you know, uh, tremendous things. But then at some point, your mother is not the, not the mentor that gets you to the next level. So, so how did you find those next people? Did they find you?
1: How did that work? So it it was both uh, realizing that there was a lot I didn't know and also recognizing that I I don't know everything that I don't know. I actively sought out mentorship um, from different genders, races, ethnicities, different levels in their career. When I was beginning in medical school, I was very involved in the Office of Diversity Affairs and um, sought a lot of direction and guidance from the Dean of Diversity Affairs, Dr. Pettigrew, when I was... um, in uh, residency or even actually in medical school, the American Academy of Child and Adolescent Psychiatry has a mentorship program. So I went online and I signed up and requested a mentor and w- was able to work with really amazing child psychiatrists where they taught me about research and they taught me about how to to be in academics and how to balance um, medicine and academics and, and evidence-based and, and how to really support underserved communities in a a really proactive and efficient way. And so, um, and then even in residency, when I I came to Boston, uh, Dr. David Henderson was one of the psychiatrists at at Mass General, and he did a lot of global work. And I met with him and I told him, "I, I want to learn more about global psychiatry. I want to understand how other cultures address mental health. And he became an incredible mentor and sent me all over the world. I spent time in Liberia and Ghana and learned so much. And so I, I was very proactive in finding individuals who were where I wanted to be or who I felt like had knowledge that I didn't have.
0: That's really great to hear those, you know, very specific examples. I mean, so many women like you accomplish worldly, making a larger impact um, every day in the work they do. They speak about mentorship, but you're actually showing about like how intentionally you are able to create and and just cultivate some of those really important relationships. So that's terrific. Nicole, Nicole, I wanted to sort of turn to your area of expertise. So you're a child psychologist, you are an expert in mental health, you know, as an expert, we're in still coming out of hopefully a pandemic. Um, there has been, you know, a awakening across the nation a big political divide divisive issues and you spoke about trauma trauma from multiple levels from you know just the navigation of social traumas um, racial trauma other things so first of all what are you seeing what is your sort of prognosis on the landscape um, of uh, trauma and stress in this country right now what are the types of things that you see and what do you think we should be doing about it
1: Sure. That, that's a great, I mean, we could literally spend hours <laughs> on this topic, uh, but that, I mean, that's a very, a very important question. So I, I'm concerned. I am very concerned about the health of our children. Every day on the news, I'm seeing increased fights in school, increased stress among teachers. There's a, a workforce shortage in schools and, and buses and, you know, the, the support that our children need, the structure, the consistency many of many of those things are are present, but not to the full extent that's needed, or they're just not at all present because the, the resources aren't there. And we're seeing an increase in kids and adults presenting to emergency rooms in psychiatric crisis with suicidal thoughts, having self-harmed. And, and we know that there are certain groups of individuals who are much more vulnerable, who have had a disproportionate Impacted, have experienced a negative, disproportionately negative impact because of, of COVID. I mean, I think recently I read about 140,000 children in the United States have lost at least one parent or grandparent. And mm-hmm. many of those kids are Black. Or Latino, or many of those kids come from families of color that were already struggling with financial stability due to the pandemic, or managing illness, or you know even if they didn't lose a parent or family member, they're they're now managing long COVID. So there, there's just there's the you know immediate obvious complexities of COVID, but then there are also the transitions of of going back to school, dealing with the racial reckoning that's happening in this country and witnessing these videos of racial violence and or police brutality or even, you know, how certain individuals are treated, you know, when, when there's someone on trial for murder, how that individual, depending on the color of their skin, is treated differently than a Black victim and how certain people are vilified and others are not. All of those experiences are traumatic. And so in terms of what to do, num- number one is, acknowledging that many of our kids are in pain and that they're suffering. And it is really not on us to tell someone else what is painful or what is traumatic for them. I think often as adults or in, in general as people, our, our goal is to try to, to pacify, oh, it's not that bad or, oh, you know, maybe, maybe it's not what you thought it was, or maybe that wasn't racism. And, and that's kind of our just general instinct to kind of make it better, but not realizing that sometimes th- that's actually exacerbating the underlying pain. Sometimes people just need to be affirmed, you know what, that is painful. I can't imagine how challenging that must be. I can't imagine how difficult it must be to be a Latino or Asian American in predominantly white settings and and how you don't always feel welcomed or supported and, and not minimizing that experience and acknowledging that discrimination, Islamophobia, homophobia, any type of discrimination, all of those experiences are potentially traumatic And all of those experiences should be recognized as such and treated as such. And realizing that any of those experiences, that's cumulative. Trauma is cumulative. And we we know that although we're not screening for it in mental health, people who have experienced lifelong discrimination or or racism often meet criteria for PTSD or anxiety or depression. And and we really do need to start expanding our definition of trauma and, and treating people as trauma survivors.
0: And we're also seeing, just in terms of, you know, the robust amount of medical science and research that's going on in terms of the impact of racism on so many other health um, impacts, chronic disease, you know, short changes to like length of life life expectancy, um, and so I agree with you that these issues are quite enormous. We could spend um, hours on them, and I really don't want to minimize them. So, you know, can we focus on some of the areas, maybe one or two of them, where there are potential solutions? You know, give. I think we do all have a, a reason to be worried about the youth in America, and it's happening um, to them, to us, but we're also participating in it. So what are are some things that you think could be helpful. I think you're how to acknowledge trauma by not just trying you know the cheery um, it's going to be okay but acknowledging what people are saying or feeling or experiencing whether you can through your own experience or just try and try and understand theirs is helpful. But what else? What do you see as things that we can do even to just touch a piece of these large problems?
1: Sure. I, I do think it's it's helpful in all settings to take what's described as a trauma-sensitive or trauma-informed approach. And this doesn't have to be limited to medical or the mental health field. This can be in your day-to-day interactions with people or in the, in the work environment. I think even on an organizational level, many more companies are looking at what it means to to, um, support psychological safety or creating a more trauma-sensitive environment. And so essentially what that means um, is by taking a trauma-sensitive approach, number one, we are not labeling people by their worst days. We're not labeling people based on what we see to be deficits. We're taking a more strength-based approach because everyone can do something well. Everyone has a special capability. We just often don't look for it. And then also, if someone is struggling, instead of looking at them and and focusing on what they've done or what's wrong with them, we're changing our perspective and and saying, what's happened to them? What pain have they experienced that may have led to this behavior? And just frankly, giving people some leniency. So even a specific example in our day-to-day work lives, let's say you work with a colleague and they've been persistently late. Our initial reaction may be to punish them you know maybe you know come up put them on a a, a performance improvement plan set clear expectations if you walk into your boss's office because you've been late and the first thing they say is this is unacceptable you need to do better you cannot continue to be late this is impacting everyone okay that you know i'm sure many of us have seen or been in that situation but imagine instead if you walked into your boss's office and they said hey I'm concerned, I I realize that recently you've been late and I'm wondering what's going on. Is is there something that we can support you with? Do you need help? Is there, what's missing? What tools or resources do you need to be successful that we aren't providing? How can I support you in being successful? Now, same situation, very different responses and that that changes the way that the individual responds and the sense of safety that they feel and, and frankly, even the outcome.
0: What about the the interactions, you know, on all of the technology platforms that we're dealing with? I mean, we have so many of us, it's Zoom calls, you know, all day long. And, you know, even the telephone is not, is no longer direct voice to voice conversation. You know, if it's not a Zoom call, it's, um, you know, social media responses, Facebook or whatever, Twitter, uh, you know, on and on. So what are you seeing there? And that, you know, from my perspective, just seems to have only magnified the problem and reduced that you know, being trauma sensitive um, and and aware that makes a lot of sense to me, but yet we're not seeing it. I'm not seeing it, you know, in terms of just the culture of online interactions.
1: Absolutely. And I I tell myself and I tell my patients all the time, step away from the computer, step away from your phone. Social media is not always our friend uh, because we are, there's no break right, you know, when we when we watch the news, you can turn the TV off or, you know, pre-24-hour news cycle, the news was on at specific times of the day. And so it was, you know, it, it was a more deliberate exposure. Now with social media, I mean, you can be bombarded with constant negative imagery and toxic information or toxic responses from people online who, who really their only intention is to, to be harmful. Um, so, you know, when we're thinking about connecting via social media, I I, I feel very strongly that we need to impose our own internal limits because it's not healthy. Particularly when you're in a a setting where you're arguing with someone, I've never seen anyone change their life because of social media. I've never seen anyone change their opinions because of an argument that they had on Twitter. Um, And so you know, that's not worth your energy. And being very clear that, and I I heard this term the other day, um, saying no protects your yes. And so there are certain things where we invest our energy, it's depleting. It's, it's, not, it's not reinvigorating, it's not refreshing. And social media is one of these things that cannot, that's often very depleting. And so making sure we're putting limits. In terms of you know Zoom meetings, um, even you know my, my company is fully virtual. We are a telepsychiatry company, and our uh, chief people officer, she's intentional about scheduling meetings for 45 or 50 or 55 minutes because people need breaks. You, you can't, I think because people are working from home, the assumption is you can work nonstop, you still need to take a lunch. You still need to step away from the work and, and step away from your computer in order to be present in order to be fully engaged. And, and I, and I do believe that we can cultivate relationships via the zoom or even via the phone, via technology, but we, we, we still have to acknowledge the limitations and we still have to acknowledge that we need those breaks and we, we need to still practice self-care and a part of self-care is limit setting.
0: So how about that for yourself, Nicole? I mean, you know, I think all of that advice is terrific. Are you good at practicing what you know are the right things to <laughs> or how do? Or how do you maintain your own balance and self-care?
1: You know, that that is such a great question. I, I think my my husband and my kids kind of force me to, even, even when I, I don't. And, and I also realize I, I have to be better at practicing what I preach because I, I tend to overwork. I tend to give everything 110%. And, um, you know, you cannot be, Great at everything all the time, and that's hard for me. I I think a a lot of people in medicine were probably Type A personalities. A lot of people in science, like things have to be done a certain way. But also realizing that I I am I am not productive if I haven't eaten lunch. I'm not productive if if I I haven't had a break. And my grandmother used to have this saying: "You you can't pour from an empty glass." As a caregiver in multiple areas of my life, I, I'm i very aware of when I am done, when I'm exhausted, I am not a good mother. I'm not a good spouse. I'm not a good physician. I'm not a good leader. And I'm telling my the physicians that work for me to prioritize self-care and let's find ways to reduce burnout. And they're looking at me like, but you're sending this email at midnight. So- <laughs> I think maybe you need to kind of look in the mirror. So, I, I mean, it's, it's a constant work in progress, um, but at the, at the very least I'm thinking about it and, and making an effort and, and realizing that this is just as important as, as getting anything else done.
0: Well, I'm glad to hear that you're not um, as superwoman as you appear and that (laughs) that you're human. And I actually, I mean, I saw one of your interviews and I really appreciated your comment that there are no healthy children without healthy adults. And I think that that really was just a very astute commentary on, you know, why it is so important. But I agree with you. We we struggle with it. We all struggle with it. Nicole, I have really, you know, I mean, I I could speak to you about so many of <laughs> issues, but on inspiring women, you know, I also really like to focus on, you know, for people like you who've accomplished so much and who are clearly driven to have an outsized impact on um, the world. What would you close on in terms of advice to younger women who are starting out, um, who maybe don't have it all figured out yet? What would you What would you advise? What would be some advice there?
1: Oh, I, one I would say I don't think anyone ever has it all figured out. Um, I think there's always that that doubt, um, that concern, and not to allow that to hold you back. Uh, I think we, as women, we, we tend to undermine ourselves. We, we don't um, acknowledge our strengths as much in the same way that I, I recommend we acknowledge the strengths in others. We, we have to be willing to to acknowledge what we can do versus focusing on what we can't do, acknowledging on what we have accomplished. When we look back over our day or over our lives, we tend to focus on what we didn't do. And even like when we think about a to-do list, you have 50 things on your to-do list and you may have done 10, but you'll focus on the five that you didn't. Versus thinking about, wow, I was able to accomplish all of these tasks. So so number one, I would say, please give yourself credit because you are already incredible and have already done so much. And and two, again, please don't do this alone. This is any any career, any ladder that we're trying to climb. There are many, many times that there's things, there's barriers, there are people who are in the way of of us becoming successful and trying to, to bear that burden on our own is, is, is really challenging that these days of grin and bear it or suck it up that that needs to be eliminated, that that's not healthy. What we need to do is have someone to say, I am here. Yes. It's a hard day. Yes. If you need to cry, cry. Yes. If you need to scream, scream and having someone that you can check in with having those accountability partners, having those people who really pour into your, your life and edify you and, um, and seeking being aggressive and seeking out mentors, the worst they can say is no but then you potentially have another person in your corner to help guide you.
0: Well, this is um, great. And I have to just say, you know, it is um, encouraging to hear you talk about these issues and it makes me just feel great to know that there are people like you working so hard um, in these areas of stress and trauma and really caring and building solutions to reach out and help um, both just, just children, youth, and undisturbed you know, minority populations in particular. I've really appreciated, like, learning from you and hearing um, your words of wisdom. This has been just a great inspiring women conversation. I've been speaking to Dr. Nicole Christian-Brothway, and Nicole,
1: thank you so much. Thank you so much for this podcast and and thank you for having me.
0: This has been an episode of Inspiring Women with Lori McGraw. Please subscribe, rate, and review. We are produced by Kate Cruz at Executive Podcast Solutions. More episodes can be found on inspiringwomen.show. I am Lori McGraw and thank you for listening.